Last week, four human rights groups called for a statutory inquiry into what they say is one of the most significant miscarriages of justice in modern Irish history. I was kidnapped off the street. I was tortured and framed, sent through an unfair trial, jailed uh, and had my health, as the rest have, pretty much destroyed. It concerns the Salins train robbery of 1976, a sophisticated crime where almost £200,000 was stolen by an armed gang. The Cork mail train was on its way to Dublin. It carried a rich bounty as it neared Salins in County Kildare. Not long after the heist, Gardaí rounded up six men they believed were involved, even though there was absolutely nothing linking them to the crime. Eventually, at some four or five o'clock on Wednesday morning, I signed the statement to something I did not do. I signed him to stop the beatings. Despite a remarkable lack of evidence, accusations of physical assault by Gardaí while the men were being questioned and forced confessions, three of the men were convicted and later sentenced to between 9 and 12 years in prison. The men maintained their innocence throughout and were later released on appeal. Yet still to this day, after 47 years, there's never been an investigation into their wrongful convictions, their treatment in Garda custody, or how the trials unfolded. I think that an investigation that um, alludes to everything that happened will have great lessons for the criminal law system in Ireland. The absence and the failure to hold that inquiry to, to bring out those lessons uh, is a cover-up. So will a new call for a state inquiry finally be answered? Is the state willing to investigate itself? Or will the men ever get an apology? And can I say that I think personally that the cover-up is in fact worse than what happened to us in 1976. I'm Bernice Harrison. This is in the news from the Irish Times. Today, the Salins train robbery and the men still seeking justice nearly five decades on. In this episode, I speak to Patsy McGarry, Irish Times contributor and author of the book While Justice Slept, Nikki Kelly and the True Story Behind the Salins Train Robbery. Patsy, to understand exactly what happened and what led to what has been called a gross miscarriage of justice, will you bring us back to 1976 and what happened on the night of March the 31st on the Dublin to Cork train? On that night, March 31st, 1976, an armed gang raided a train which was carrying an estimated £220,000 between Cork and Dublin. And they succeeded in getting away with it. Two hours before the robbery, a number of men took over the bungalow belonging to the O'Toole family and disconnected the telephone. The family were confined in a bedroom and at three o'clock they heard detonators exploding. They heard the train stop and then reverse and a short time later they heard a number of cars driving away. Mrs O'Toole told me the raiders were very polite and they apologised for causing her and her children any inconvenience. train slowed down coming to the mile and a half mile post and stopped. I looked out and those three men running towards the driver. Went over to the other side to see what was wrong and there was a man standing on the bank, a figure, couldn't make out a face or anything, it was all black with a rifle pointing at the van. We were in the light and he was in the dark. It led to the arrest of six 
members of the Irish Republican Socialist Party, as it was at the time. Four of them were tried. Three of them were convicted. Two of them were later freed. And one of them, Nicky Kelly, was detained uh, until 1984 when he was released from prison on humanitarian grounds. So six men, as you say, Oscar Branagh, Michael Barrett, John Fitzpatrick, Nicky Kelly, Brian McNally and Michael Plunkett. They were all arrested. Who were they? And why did the guards associate them with the crime? Well, they would have been well-known agitators and uh, protesters at the time on various human rights issues, often related to events in Northern Ireland and indeed to events in the UK where the Birmingham Six case took place and the Guildford Four, etc., involving innocent Irish people who were jailed wrongly for crimes committed by the IRA, bombings committed by the IRA in the UK. Um, they would have strong resp- Republican sympathies. The Irish Republican Socialist Party was the political wing of the INLA, one of the most cruel, brutal um, Republican paramilitaries in Northern Ireland. Dominic McClinchy, for instance, was a member of the INLA. But these people, it has to be emphasised, were not paramilitaries. They were political, uh, with strong, very very strong political convictions. Uh, they were rounded up and tended to be rounded up regularly when anything untoward happened politically or with a Northern Ireland tone to it. So we know that some of the men, not all, were tried, convicted and imprisoned for what the guards say was their part in the robbery. But what do we know And I suppose this gets to the crux of what's currently at issue. What do we know about what happened to the men while they were in Garda custody? We do know that all those men were badly beaten while in Garda custody um, before they signed confessions. And I use the word confessions in inverted commas because they weren't confessions. They were beaten out of them. I was beaten um, on all stages during the interviews, except for short lulls, I was beaten right through Monday, Monday night, early into Tuesday morning. I was transferred to another police station and the next morning it started again. Oscar Brannock was so badly beaten and he'd only been in company of Gardaí that he had to be taken to hospital immediately after he signed his confession. Now, when this evidence was presented to the Special Criminal Court, it was never queried. Um, and the only people who gave evidence for the state in the case were the three doctors who examined these men when they were admitted to prison eventually, uh, an attendant to one of the doctors and 47 Gardaí. So, I mean, the evidence, if you like, was loaded where the state was concerned. And they did obviously contend that they had been beaten by Gardaí the court, the Special Criminal Court, didn't accept that. It accepted the confessions as valid evidence. There was no other evidence. And so these men were convicted. But the idea was that it wasn't just random Gardaí that had beaten them. No. The, at the time, indeed, uh, following disclosures in our own newspaper or shortly beforehand, there was evidence of what was called a heavy gang, which was deployed to crack difficult, usually murder cases. Uh, and they had a s- similar pattern of behaviour which emerged subsequently and indeed since then has been much, much talked about in the Kerry Babies case where an innocent family confessed to the murder of two babies. So was there a sense that the heavy gang were brought in to interrogate? They were brought in to deliver uh, and they did usually deliver uh, as we now know with horrific consequences for innocent people, uh, not least the Hayes family, not least the likes of Nikki Kelly, Oscar Brannock, etc. in the Salance case. Now, the idea, of course, of train robbery, it really does sound like something from a different era. And I suppose the 70s really were a different era. And I think the whole thing about that robbery was that there was absolutely no evidence at the scene. But 
what else did the guards have to bring the men to trial? What, what evidence was there? Or was it just based solely on the confessions? It was based solely on the confessions and the fact that they were the usual suspects. But can I make a point? In researching the book we published in 2006, I tracked down and interviewed the leader of the gang that actually raided the train. Uh, a member of an IRA gang. They had a cell in, in North Kildare. And he told me what happened. There was a 17-member gang involved. It was heavily organised, meticulously carried out. And the IRA did twice subsequently admit responsibility in 1980 and again later on when Nicky Kelly was in hunger strike. This man, the leader of the gang, told me, and this is the opening chapter of the book, that the guards were aware that they did it. Uh, now, I became aware subsequently, but they did it. But they daren't, daren't pursue it because they'd convicted these men on the most flimsy of evidence. Uh, and so, therefore, if they were to go after the gang successfully, it would raise questions about what they'd done in the first case where uh, the, the Salons' innocence were concerned. So, Brian McNally, Nikki Kelly and Oscar Branagh were put forward for trial. But it actually took two trials to convict them. Why? What happened in the first trial that a second trial was needed? Well, the first trial uh, in 1978 uh, involved three judges. Uh, it went on and on. It was the longest trial in the history of the state by the time it collapsed and the most expensive. And what happened in that case was one of the judges, a Judge John O'Connor, kept falling asleep during the trial. And initially, I mean, the defence counsel would make excuses, uh, toilet breaks. Uh, uh, McEntee, who was the lead uh, defence, senior counsel for the defence, eventually uh, started dropping books from a height to waken up the judge. It was written about in Hibernia magazine Fiasco. at the time, which is the current affairs periodical at the time, uh, and they expected to be challenged. They weren't challenged. So eventually the defence counsel in court challenged the fact. They said, this man is falling asleep. The other judges were appalled that they could make such an allegation. They retreated, all three judges, and made a finding of fact that their colleague was not sleeping. And this was appealed to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court upheld that finding of fact that this man was not sleeping. And the trial went ahead. And a couple of months, sorry, a couple of weeks later, the judge died. It just transpired that he was on medication for a heart condition and a side effect of which was drowsiness. So there had to be a second trial. And in the second trial, there was just one judge. And that was Justice Liam Hamilton. Now, I was struck by the, the story of Oscar Branagh that he signed his name with the wrong spelling, deliberately. And immediately after his interrogation, he said that the confession had been forced out of him. So he said this, the wrong spelling, pretty clear. Why wasn't this considered at the trial, though? He added a H to Branagh uh, and he never spelt his name uh, with the H. Oscar did that deliberately to indicate that this was not a real confession insofar as he could. I think the much more significant matter is not the spelling of the name, but how this man, uh, who, who was only in the presence of Gardaí, could end up, first of all, signing a confession that, to something he did not do, but also that he was so badly injured mm. that he had to be hospitalised immediately afterwards. Well, then what did the guards say uh, about that at the trial? They were never asked to explain it. Uh, I mean, in his case in particular, you would have imagined that Justice Hamilton would have said, asked, well, fine, maybe these guys might have beaten them up in the cells where they shouldn't have been put after they uh, had been brought before the district court to be charged. But what about this man who was on his own all the time except in the company of Gardaí? How could that happen? But he didn't. Hamilton never asked, asked the question. Despite the lack of evidence, Patsy, we know that Oscar Branagh and Brian McNally, they spent 17 
months in jail. Uh, Nikki Kelly, he went on the run. What happened for them to be released? It was found uh, on appeal that their evidence, the confessions, in other words, were delivered under oppressive circumstances. In other words, they were didn't exactly find that they'd been beaten, but anyhow, that was the implication. Releasing them today, Mr Justice Finlay said statements they had made were not legally admissible, and the statements were the only evidence produced to establish their involvement in the robbery. Later, at the headquarters of the Irish Republican Socialist Party, officials repeated allegations that the two men had been ill-treated, allegations denied by Gardaí. Now, Nicky Kelly, at that stage, Nicky Kelly, when the confessions were admitted as evidence, knew his goose was cooked. And he decided, I'm not going to stay here. I'm not going to go to jail. He was jailed to 12 years penal servitude in his absence. So Nicky Kelly went to Paris, went to the Netherlands, to Canada, and then made his way into the United States. He was very homesick and uh, he was helped by a lot of Irish Americans, particularly uh, Paula Dwyer, who was a uh, very leading uh, counsellor, uh, lawyer in the United States in New York City. Uh, the Kennedys were very helpful to him as well. The various media people in the States who believed him that he was innocent. Then when these other men were cleared, Brannock and McNally, Nicky was very keen to come home. He was and he would have assumed, presumably, it's safe to He home. assumed, first of all, as well, their appeal was succeeded in May of 1980. The previous month, the IRA went public and said, we did it. These guys didn't do it. So Nicky was doubly assured. And he thought, I'm going home. His counsel, Pat McCartan, who later became a judge, uh, said, do not come home. You're not, it's not safe for you to come home. But he came home and he was arrested at Shannon Airport, brought to the Special Criminal Court and sent to Port Leash Jail to serve out the rest of his 12 years being in servitude. And of course, he immediately started to challenge this in the various courts. And to make a long story short, he, he, he failed in the courts. And uh, he went on a hunger strike for 38 days and was very, very ill. And the state approached him and said, OK, there is one area you have. He was told initially that he's, he'd exhausted the uh, legal routes to freedom. And they said, there's one you haven't exhausted yet you could take a civil action against the state. In other words, and he was led to believe that would succeed. And, and also for Nicky, what was attractive in that is that it was the first time he'd, he'd have a jury trial, not just a judge. And that to him was very important because he believed no jury would convict him on so-called evidence being presented. And he accepted that, so he came off the hunger strike. And when he initiated the civil action against the state, which the state had advised him to do, the state opposed the civil action. It was just... Outrageous conduct on top of outrageous conduct. In the interim period, he he, he initiated various appeals against that decision uh, to the Supreme Court, etc. While that was in train, the government, under enormous pressure from church and various NGOs and various prominent personalities in the States, in Ireland and in the UK, the state released him on humanitarian grounds. And he came out or was released from jail in 1984. But when the case did come to court, the courts in 1984, the civil action, it failed. It was turned down again. How do you react to all that? As I said, I resent the time they took away from me. And now you intend to get it back by continuing court action? Oh, I'll continue the court action and the demand will be for an independent, not a judicial, public inquiry. Thank you very much indeed. So by the mid-80s, we have... The three men who were wrongly jailed, they were freed. But, as you say, the Irish Times, for example, would have reported extensively on the heavy gang. It was known then that the, the confessions were beaten out of these men. But there was no investigation, was there, into their treatment, the beatings, the wrong convictions? Was it, uh... Never. It has never been investigated, which is why it's almost an annual event now that you have groups like the four civil rights groups lately and others last year 
calling for an independent judicial inquiry into what went wrong in the Salans case because the flaws it exposed in our system of justice are still there. And given similar circumstances, there is no reason why it couldn't happen again. Do you think so? Or given the same circumstances, similar circumstances. Mm, because the guards at the time in the 70s, if you think of what Ireland was like in the 70s, you know, the, the political background, the IRA were very active. The guards were under immense pressure, weren't they, to, to, to solve this crime so that the state was safe. Yeah, absolutely. But that doesn't, doesn't uh, excuse for one minute them breaking the law, sure. if you like, to, to protect the state. Mm. Just in 1986, when Judge O'Hanlon gave that judgment, and I think this is astonishing, dismissing Nikki Kelly's civil action, 19 of the leading members of the Irish judiciary at that time who dealt with the case upheld what was one of the most egregious miscarriages mm. of justice ever in the, in the history of this state. And they included seven Supreme Court judges, seven High Court judges, two Circuit Court judges, and three District Court judges all upheld the most significant miscarriage of justice in the history of the Irish state. And that has never been explained. And I suppose that brings us up to this past week where four human rights groups, the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, the Committee on the Administration of Justice, the Pat Finucane Centre and Fair Trials, they've put forward an an 18-page petition to Helen McEntee, Minister of Justice. Um, But you say this is nearly sort of an annual event. You know, this has been going on for 50 years, nearly an annual event. So what would it take for a public inquiry to happen or even an apology to be made? Well, I mean, it it should also be remembered that in 1990, 92, the then president, Mary Robinson, pardoned Nikki Kelly as though he'd been never charged or convicted in connection with the Salons robbery. The government agreed today to recommend a pardon to Nikki Kelly. And in the eyes of the law, he's innocent of all the charges that were brought against him. Nothing could be simpler or more straightforward than that. And I'm pleased that it's all over. Well, then what are the implications for the state and for the guardie who were involved in this case? Is there now a case to be examined there for the guardie? Well, the position as well I am advised that no criminal proceedings will be brought against members of the force or former members of the force insofar as this case is concerned. Obviously, Now, I mean, that at the, from the very highest level, and one of our leading lawyers at the time, posed a very fundamental question about this case. Why, I ask you, should that big question about what happened in Salons be left hanging in the air? And I know I admit there have been changes where the Guardia are concerned uh, since then and Garda behaviour is concerned since then. But we need it to be copper fastened and we need an explanation as to why 47 Gardaí gave evidence to the effect that these men signed confessions voluntarily and were not beaten in the process of doing so. We need, we need an explanation as to why that happened. And we need an explanation as to why the courts again and again and again ignored every opportunity to see that justice was done in these cases and at every level. And it could be argued some reform for the Guard are concerned. There's been no reform where the judiciary is concerned. And the judiciary must be held to account as well. I mean, they're a pillar of our democracy. And we can't have a situation where uh, such an, a hugely significant and important uh, institution in our democracy uh, can be, if you like, let away with supporting such an enormous miscarriage of justice. The men involved, why do they think, and they must have views, why do they think there is no appetite for a public inquiry? Well, they believe, first of all, I mean, and I would believe this is valid, that the state does not like to find itself being investigated by itself or whatever, but doesn't like itself being investigated because they have no idea and they have no control over the findings, particularly of an independent inquiry. 
Well, I've never met a Minister for Justice in 40 years of campaigning for a public inquiry. Ever? Ever. And I, I'm, I'm told in the 40 uh, plus years, 47 years is it since, there have been 23 different Ministers for Justice. You've never, never ever had a meeting face to face with any of them? No, never. There is a sense too as well that it was a long time ago. Uh, two new generations have come and gone since then. It's the past, but people don't realise the implications of it for the present because the flaws that led to it are still there uh, in our legal system and in our judiciary. Uh, and that's why the, it is a, a matter which is of utmost pertinence now as at any time over the last 50 years. And there's a lingering feeling in the part of these men that there's a latent prejudice against them because of their political views, especially the views that they held back then and in the past, which have been fairly radical and fairly Republican. Uh, and that would not be deemed to be the outlook of the state. What kind of lasting impact did this horrendous miscarriage of justice have on the lives of the men involved? And, you know, wider, obviously, the lives of their families. Well, all these men have suffered physically or physi- physiologically and psychologically, not least Nicky Kelly. I mean, his 38-day hunger strike meant that many of his organs were irreparably damaged. In particular, his esophagus. He's had cancer since then. He's had um, um, health issues, uh, ongoing health issues since then. None of these men are younger, are getting younger. Uh, they have all received compensation from the state uh, of various finance, financial amounts, etc. Uh, and this is not about money. This is about basically rectifying uh, a, a system of justice that is still flawed. And that has not, where those flaws have not been addressed. Not, not alone should they be addressed, but they should be seen to be addressed to the satisfaction of Irish citizenry. Do you think we're going to be back here next year then, Patsy, with the same civil rights groups calling for an inquiry and the same silence? Sadly, I am, uh, I, I am not a negative person by nature, Bernice, but looking at the pattern of this case and all these calls for justice over the many recent years particularly uh, falling on deaf ears I have no reason to think it'll, it'll be other it'll be different this year Thanks very much Patsy That's it for today Thanks again to Patsy McGarry for joining me For more reports and analysis from the Irish Times subscribe at irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe I'm Bernice Harrison This episode is produced by Suzanne Brennan In the news we'll be back tomorrow 